I pay homage to the Buddha. I pay homage to the Dhamma. I pay homage to the Sangha. So the last few months, I've been picking different themes, uh, such as the Four Noble Truths or the Five Aggregates, specifically because they're the kinds of things that um, many have confused as things that we just simply memorize or try to understand. And I've been trying to highlight these last few months um, a more actionable approach to them, things that we can do, uh, tasks or duties that we might have that when we look back at the suttas, we see the Buddha himself having done. Uh, for example, the Four Noble Truths, not simply being things that we memorize, that yes, there's suffering, there's a cause of suffering, uh, an end to suffering, and a path, but rather looking at them as things that we ourselves undertake to, to know and to do to comprehend suffering, to abandon its causes, to uh, develop uh, the qualities that lead to its cessation, to develop the path, and so on. And the same thing with the five aggregates as not just being a, an, an alternate explanation for what a being is, or simply uh, things or processes that happen in the body and mind, but rather the very activities in which we cling, how we cling, and how we can change those activities for the sake of non-clinging and so on. So today is uh, a similar uh, theme, except this time around the concept of happiness itself, and the sense of happiness being the opposite of suffering, the opposite of stress, the opposite of dukkha. Because the way we... Uh, can talk about these things often ends up being in a very negative sense. We're always talking about suffering and the end of suffering, only ever in those ways. Where when we go back to the Pali Canon, when we go back to the Sutta Pitaka, when we go back to the Buddhist teachings, we talk about suffering because we're trying to develop the opposite of suffering, which is happiness, sukha. And so in light of that, I did find this quote by Joseph Campbell, because I think it very well illustrates the confusion we have around suffering, uh, which it seems that Joseph Campbell himself also is confused by. <laughs> uh, and if you don't know who Joseph Campbell is uh, or was, um, he was a professor with uh, an interest in comparative religion and comparative uh, folklore. And he's quite famous for his Hero of a Thousand Faces, and uh, the monomyth concept, and uh, of course the hero's journey. I think uh, part, partly why he's so well known is because he was an influence on George Lucas in writing up the character Luke Skywalker in and, and Star Wars, and that seemed to be a launching pad for a lot of stuff he did with PBS in the 80s and, and whatnot. Um, and so we, we see uh, in, in Joseph Campbell someone very interested in not only Western religion and myth, but also Eastern, and especially in the Indic religions and folktales, which include Buddhism, but also uh, involve a lot of Hinduism. And so uh, 
this quote that I'm going to read to you now is is a bit of that. It's a bit of, of mishmash, and I think a good example of uh, the way we relate to suffering and the relief, the cessation of suffering, in the West especially, but I think all over the world now. So Joseph Campbell says, We're in a free fall into future. We don't know where we're going. Things are changing so fast, and always, when we're going through a long tunnel, anxiety comes along. And all you have to do to transform your hell into a paradise is to turn your fall into a voluntary act. It's a very interesting shift of perspective, and that's all it is. Joyful participation in the sorrows, and everything changes. So there are quite a few things that, that stand out to me in, in, this, in this quote. Um, for starters, if one is wondering whether or not he has uh, Buddhism in mind, or at least Eastern religions in general in mind, uh, this quote seems to, when I tried to, to find the source of it, comes from um, a documentary, like a series of talks that people had, had put together into, uh, into like a DVD or a special called uh, Sukhavati, uh, which is a Sanskrit term that means full of happiness, Sukha being happiness in this case, that most people in the West usually know by other translations because it's the, the name that originally was the... Uh, the Western Paradise, or the Pure Land. So very much in this idea, this quote, Joseph Campbell is uh, attempting to elucidate, elucidate it, attempting to show us how we find paradise. And his solution is a shift in perspective, joyful participation in the sorrows, and everything changes. So for me, this looks a lot like the, the pop culture understanding of suffering and stress, of dukkha. That ultimately, it's just something to be endured, let's say, or ultimately, it's the kind of thing that, that we, we simply have to embrace. It's just the way things are. And if you do that, you'll be fine. Now, what I find telling about the Buddha's understanding of dukkha and then its opposite, sukha, is that it's not the kind of thing that comes from just accepting things the way they are, but rather uh, training the mind in such a way that it can find real happiness in ways that don't cause stress. One example of this is in the uh, Kalama Sutta, that's Anguttara Nikaya uh, AN uh, 3.65. And in this sutta, um, among lots of things that the Buddha talks about, he tries to show the kind of qualities, the kind of dhammas that are worth uh, pursuing, per worth cultivating. The phrase he uses is, Upasampaja uh, viharayata, which means enter and dwell. So the qualities that are worth 
entering and dwelling in, in, in rather turning them into our, our refuge, turning them into our nourishment. And the qualities that he lists are you know, being skillful, kusala, blameless, uh, anabaja, praised by the wise, vinyupasata, and when put into practice, are conducive to well-being and happiness. Samata, samadina, hitaya, sukaya, samatanti. So we see here that the Buddha's advice on what's worth pursuing is not simply accepting things as they are, or just having a shift in perspective in terms of the way things are, but rather looking at the body and mind and seeing what can be done and what can be cultivated. To cultivate skillfulness, to cultivate blamelessness, to cultivate qualities that are praised by the wise, praised by people like the Buddha and his disciples, and the very things that when put into the practice are conducive to well-being and happiness. So what we see here, this hitaya sukaya, well-being and happiness, is not something that comes about simply by joyful participation in sorrows, but finding a way to be sorrowless, to be sorrowless in terms of skillful and blamelessness. Those are the things that we can do, and that's where we should enter and dwell. So blamelessness itself can be expanded on, because uh, on its own, it, it's hard to say what it might be, this anabhaja. So one way of translating anabhaja, other than blameless, is to translate it as harmless. What we might say is that the Buddha recognizes that our usual mode of being, our usual kinds of actions, verbal, mental, bodily actions, are harmful, ultimately, to our well-being and happiness. That ultimately they erode the kind of well-being and happiness that we can have. That's to say that when the Buddha started on his path, as he started as a renunciant trying to find an end to suffering, what he was ultimately trying to find was a secure happiness, something that's not dependent on outside factors, not dependent on things that can be taken away or damaged or misused or could in any way be harmful or blameful. And so the question always becomes the measure for things on whether or not they are a secure kind of happiness hinges on this blameless quality. And it's particularly the kind of thing that the Buddha says is actually the highest kind of sukha, the highest kind of happiness. In the Anana Sutta, that's Anguttara Nikaya, AN 4.62. The Buddha talks about four kinds of happiness, happiness that uh, a lay person, a, a, a someone who, who's still living uh, the, the home life, the way he would phrase it, one still uh, delighting in, in sensuality, he would say. Uh, there are four types of, of happiness that such a, a person can have. The first type is the happiness of earning, atisukha. Wealth by just and righteous means. The happiness of using, uh, bogasukha, uh, wealth, the, the happiness of using wealth. 
liberally on family, friends, meritorious, meritorious deeds. The happiness of debtlessness, Ananasuka. Be free from debts. But then he has this last one, the fourth one, the happiness of blamelessness, Anabajasuka. And in this one, he says, and which is the bliss of blamelessness? There is the case where the disciple of the noble ones is endowed with blameless bodily action, blameless verbal action, blameless mental action. And thinking on these, he experiences bliss, experiences joy. This is the bliss of blamelessness. And then at the end of it, he provides a uh, poem, verses. Knowing the bliss of debtlessness, remembering the bliss of having, partaking of the bliss of partaking, a mortal then sees clearly with discernment, seeing clearly the wise one knows both sides. That side isn't worth one-sixteenth of the bliss of blamelessness. So this becomes uh, an important thing to keep in mind when we try to cultivate happiness. What does it look like to, to cultivate happiness? The Buddha gives us three things that we can look at as we try to, say, climb the ladder to, to ultimate happiness. And they're the, precisely the kind of things that we have taken on as uh, marks of existence things the way they are in an unchanging way. In fact, oftentimes we call them that, the three marks of existence, of being uh, impermanent, of being stressful, of being not-self. And if we take those as bold-faced facts, that they are completely unchanging, then we only have really two modes of action. We can either see them as just statements of fact that we cannot do anything about other than accept. And if we can accept that things are impermanent, if we can accept that things are unsatisfactory, stressful, and, uh, and suffering, and we can accept that there's no self to be found in any of that, then maybe we can find whatever measure of peace or happiness we can find in that acceptance. And then there's a more philosophical, metaphysical approach where we try to use our insight to pierce through impermanence and see how, the, how transient and transitory all of reality is at its base level and see how that, uh, identifying with it in such a way, that is what's stressful. And it's all because we have this illusion of a self. But there's also this other third option that I would like to endorse. Where when the Buddha provides this prescription, or rather this, this way of looking at things, it's often when someone is trying to decide between one form of happiness and another. Which one is the better kind of happiness? It's the same kind of thing when the Buddha tries to find what is skillful, what's unskillful, and what is skillful. And it's measuring the two side by side and looking at them. And so we can look at the kind of activities we usually do in our day-to-day -day lives, and we can say to ourselves, okay, 
there's this kind of happiness and that kind of happiness. Of the two, which kind is the most constant, the most dependable, the most reliable, the one that's the most blameless and harmless of the two? And that, in fact, that's actually a better way of understanding uh, anicca, which is uh, the, what we usually translate as impermanent. It's, it's a negation of nietzsche, which itself means inconstant, or rather constant and reliable. And it's anicca, when we add that a to the end of it, that it becomes inconstant, unreliable. And so we can look at the kind of reliability of things. Which one is blameless? Which one is skillful? Which one is praised by the wise, encouraged by people we trust to know and when we put into practice is conducive to well-being and happiness. We can look at those two things and, and see. So one of these two is going to be inconstant, or anicca, impermanent. But I think it's better to say inconstant. Well, if one of these things is inconstant, we can further say, well, if something is not reliable, it's not a reliable form of happiness, it's not the kind of thing we can trust and be secure in, is it potentially going to be a source of stress, a source of discomfort? Is it going to be the kind of thing that could potentially lead to any kind of suffering? Well, if the answer to that is yes, what we've then found is the kind of thing the Buddha tells us we should not look at as me or mine or myself to hold dear to me. That's the language the Buddha uses in the suttas. And that's the very kind of thing that he says, that's what's not worthy of claiming. That's not what's worthy of calling self. And so it is then not self. And so that's the tricky thing in trying to find our long-lasting and reliable happiness. The, the secret that we, we haven't quite picked up on is that we are already joyfully participating in the things that cause us sorrow, that cause us stress that causes our lamentation. And we do it not because we don't have a, a way of seeing impermanence on this uh, fundamental level. We don't, it's not because we don't see that things are, are transitory. I can guarantee you, if you had supervision, like some kind of superhero, and you can see atoms colliding, that knowing and that seeing wouldn't change your relationship to anything other than probably having some really weird visions. But we can then see Anicca as something that we can't rely on, or at least can't rely on compared to other things that are more secure. And so that becomes the endeavor, that becomes the kind of striving that the Buddha recommends. And I use striving, but I, I don't want to convey that in kind of a strong way of this, this, this agonizing way. But rather, there's always some kind of work to be done. If we look at the Buddha's life as an example, we don't see a point where he simply rests on his laurels, going, all right, I've completed enough. I can, I can rest here. This is, this is good enough. I can joyfully participate in whatever else life has, has got for me. In the Buddha's story, we see that he had teachers. And in each of those cases, those teachers were convinced that he had met the definition of enlightened that he had met the definition of having insight into whatever thing that teacher said was the key to being awakened, 
the key to being liberated. And in each of those instances, the Buddha said, not good enough, not there enough. And if any of you are big movie buffs like me, and you've watched uh, any of the DC or, or Marvel movies, if you watched, uh, say, Wonder Woman, there's this one character who has this, this phrase he keeps saying over and over and over again. He says, life is good, but it can be better, right? Something along those lines. And that was the Buddha's attitude, that whatever he had reached in his meditation, whatever he had reached in his, in his skillfulness, in his ability to, to have insight and to have proper relationships to things that cause stress, in every one of those instances, he was able again and again to go, this is good. But how can it be better? How can I make it more reliable? How can I make it more secure? What can I do that will help me be able to rest in sukha, in happiness? Where can I find this, this refuge? Where can I find this place to enter and dwell? That's what we're seeking. That's what's ultimately going to lead us to liberation. Now, to get back to the Anana Sutta, what I find really telling is the relationship that we often have to renunciation in the path. We often think of it in, in terms of a binary. Uh, either one is a renunciant or one is not. And over time, what that's created is this view that one is either a monastic or one is not, which means that whatever it is that we're, we're trying to do may not actually be the layperson's path. That the layperson should really only focus on the kind of happiness that involves uh, earning wealth by just and righteous means and uh, to spend it in a good way by providing for family, friends, and on meritorious deeds, which usually means uh, providing for, for uh, monastics. And the happiness of debtlessness, which means to be free from debts, to not owe anyone any money or anything, right? Now, all of those are good things. The Buddha says that these are four kinds of happiness. Those are things we should all do. But this fourth one, the blamelessness one, that's where it's very telling. Because in the other ones, where the Buddha is talking about the happiness of earning and using and debtlessness, he refers to someone who's uh, born of a good family. And, you know, because of the archaic language of the suttas, the Buddha says, oh, you know, a, a son of a, wealth, of, of, a, of a good family, the son of a good family. But really he just means someone who is in a situation to have these kinds of happiness. Um, which, you know, we, to, lesser, to greater and lesser degrees, we can all aspire to that. But when he gets to the happiness of blamelessness, the, the phrasing changes. Rather than simply talking about someone who comes from a good family or someone who, who has the ability to earn wealth, he instead talks about there is the case where the disciple of the noble ones, the disciple of the noble ones, which to me is a clear indication that even though he's talking about the kinds of happiness of, of a homeowner, the kind of, of, of happiness of a layperson, we have this fourth option of being a layperson who is a disciple of the Buddha, to be a member of the Chathupadisa, the fourfold assembly, to be an upasaka, or to be an upasika, which means alongside the other kind of householder responsibilities, we also have the responsibility of becoming blameless in body, in, in word, and in uh, our thoughts. We, we have that, that ability, and we have that opportunity 
And we have an avenue to experience that kind of bliss and that kind of joy by developing the Buddha's path. So, as I come to the, uh, to the end portion of the talk, I, I did want to bring up this, this other idea. Um, coming back to Joseph Campbell's talk, or rather his quote, on joyful participation in sorrows. I had said earlier that part of this problem that we have is that we are all already most people in their day-to-day lives. Uh, what the, uh, the Buddha would call like the uninformed person who hasn't learned the Dharma or, or applied the Dharma yet. The way those people are living, they are joyfully participating in their sorrows. That's, that's what it means to be in samsara. What we don't like to admit to ourselves, uh, at least initially, is that a lot of the modes of suffering happen to us by, by condition of just being a human. But there's also plenty of other areas and avenues where there is choice, there is intention, there is a way we are being and a way we are acting that is causing this stress and lamentation and suffering. That's precisely the five aggregates I was talking about last month. So the way to to find happiness then has to be through breaking up that relationship we often talk about the, uh, the three unwholesome roots in, in Theravada, and they're worth thinking about uh, time and time again. Uh, thinking about greed and aversion. And then the third one gets kind of tricky, because some people use, uh, say ignorance, and some people say delusion. And the truth is that that third unwholesome root is both. We have to understand that, that there are things that we are ignorant of, but there are also things that we are deluded about. And I think that this is one of those things. Our relationship to, to suffering and stress. We are deluded about the things that we think will make us happy. Or deluded about the kind of things that are actually reliable and, and aren't. And so we are on this path, if we so choose, that the Buddha was on to find a secure form of happiness, to find well-being and happiness. And that comes about through understanding, but also through practice, through cultivating. The very actions that we, that we take are our training, bodily training, verbal training, but especially mental training. The training of, of meditation, bhavana, that's the kind of thing we, we, we preoccupy ourselves with, not just because it, tra- it changes our relationship to suffering and stress and our relationship to the aggregates and things like that, but because it in itself is a kind of blameless happiness. Because when we do it enough, consistently, that becomes one of the places where we can rest on, one of the places where we can find... Uh, peace, one of the places where we can reliably find something that cannot be taken away, we find something reliable. And so ultimately, what I think I'm talking about is that, generally speaking, but I see it a lot in the West, we've taken quotes like this, 
from, from Joseph Campbell, as well-meaning as they might be, and taken those concepts, applying them to, to Buddhism, and thinking that we're understanding the Dhamma, in the sense that we are trading in transcendence for acceptance and thinking that we're getting the better deal. Ultimately, the Buddha isn't teaching us to accept suffering. He's teaching us to transcend suffering. The Buddha didn't look at old age, illness, and death, and all other forms of unreliable things, and go, well, that's just the way it is. I mean, if he had, I don't know why he would have stayed as a monk. Upon the realization of something, that shift in perspective, he would have just gone back home. Uh, but he didn't. He stayed as, as a monk for the rest of his life until 80 years old. And he continued, even after his enlightenment, to continue practicing in body and speech and mind, continued to meditate. And one of the reasons why is because he said that this is a, a pleasant abiding here and now. So, with that kind of uh, motivation from the Buddha to find a pleasant abiding and to find a kind of happiness and peace that we can enter and dwell in, uh, I hope that we, we take the, the lessons to heart and, and apply them put into practice the Buddha's path, uh, which has aspects of acceptance, equanimity itself. But we can't forget that aspect of it that is transcending the very sorrows, the very lamentations and stresses of life. It's not just letting them rest. Yeah, There's work to be done. <laughs>